have a, have a seat. So in this uh, penultimate week of our Exodus series, this saga of a series that we've been in for 25 weeks or whatever it is, we come to the moment where Israel finally departs from Mount Sinai and begins to head towards the Promised Land, a place that has been promised to them for generations and generations. Up to this point in the narrative, Israel has actually been camped at Mount Sinai for a year. They've been there for almost a year. And when they arrived at Mount Sinai, we've seen over the last number of weeks here at the Vine that they arrived free, but stripped of their identity. They didn't really know who they were now called to be in freedom. And we've been seeing in this series that that's so often the case for us, that Christ frees us from our sin, but we find ourselves wondering, who are we now in this freedom? How should we now live in our freedom. And we saw that God began to speak to Israel deeply about that journey that they're in now to discover who they truly are. He spoke to them about being a, a holy nation, about being a kingdom of priests. He spoke to them about the idea of a law that should be amongst them, a law that we come to understand as the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic law, but it's a, it's a law that at its very core is structured to help us to have a relationship with God, a relationship with ourselves, and then a relationship with the people around us. And out of all of this identity forming Israel, who are trying to be by God shaped into a people that could be his hands and feet in the world, Israel struggles straight away. And we saw a few weeks ago that they fall into idolatry, the second commandment that God says, don't make an idol, don't make an image. They fall into that reality very quickly. And in that place of idolatry, they begin to live out an identity that wasn't the identity that God had called them to be. And so God shows up and he asks them a critical question out of this travesty of idolatry. He says, do you want my presence with you or not? And last week we wrestled with that question for ourselves. Do we really want God's presence? Do we want his promises more than we want his presence in our lives? And so Israel are, are brought to a crossroads where they have to make a decision. Are we going to go forward with God's presence or will we walk into the promises but leave God behind? And Moses, on behalf of all of Israel, stands up in front of the people and he says to God out loud, he says, if you do not go with us, we will not move from this place. In other words, it, it is you or it is nothing that we have nothing to offer this world. We have nothing that differentiates us from everybody else in this world unless you go with us. Your presence, your forgiveness, your power, your grace, your love is what this world needs. The world doesn't need us as a people, Moses is saying. The world needs you. And if you're with us, then we can be that hands and feet that you've called us to be. And we saw last week that that's the cry of our heart as the church too. That we have nothing to offer Hong Kong. We've got nothing to offer our families that don't know Jesus. We've got nothing unless God is with us. It is His presence, His power, His grace, His love that transforms us into a people that can then offer the world something founded in the person of Jesus. Amen? And so Israel, they depart from Mount Sinai with this hope on their hearts that God indeed is going to go with them. And if God is going to go with them, not only will they receive the promises, but, but they will be shaped into a community that can reveal his heart to the many, many people that so desperately need it. What's interesting for the readers of the book of Exodus is that the rest of the story of Exodus actually exists outside of its pages. 
in fact, as we saw last week in chapter 33, where God challenged them with his presence, from chapter 34 to 40, the remaining chapters of the book, God re-emphasizes to them about the stone tablets that God had given Moses, about the construction of the tabernacle, about his sense of glory amongst them. There's no other story, if you will, that happens in the book of Exodus. That story is picked up now in the book of Numbers and in Deuteronomy. And in two weeks' time, when we finish our series on on November 26th, we'll look at the book of Deuteronomy. Today, we're going to look briefly at the book of Numbers. Because Numbers picks up exactly from where Exodus finishes off. And in Numbers, we begin to see the journey that moves forward for Israel. They leave Mount Sinai, and they travel up towards the Promised Land, but they find themselves camping in a place that the Bible describes as Kadesh Barnea. And Kadesh Barnea is the next significant turning point in their story. Now, to help you to understand all of this geography, let me bring back the map that I showed you right at the beginning of our series. If you were with us some 20-something weeks ago, uh, you would have remembered uh, this map. Now, back then, I actually explained to you that there are actually two ways of understanding Israel's journey that they took from slavery into Sinai and then towards the Promised Land. Two routes, if you will. What's known as the traditional route and what's known as the modern-day route. The traditional route has Israel starting up here in the land of Goshen. They then come down here and they cross over here where the Suez Canal is today. By the way, this is a modern day map, okay? They cross over here. They then come down here and they they stay at Mount Sinai, which is here around St. Catharines on the Sinai Peninsula. And then they go from there up towards the Promised Land, which is up over here. That's the traditional route. The modern day route sees them up here again in Goshen. They cross into the land of Egypt, still go down here, but they come over here to this place called Neweba Beach and they cross over the Red Sea at this point, and then Mount Sinai is somewhere here in modern-day Saudi Arabia, and then from there they journey up to the Promised Land. Now, which one of those you believe? Well, uh, it depends on how you read the Bible. It depends on archaeological evidence. If you were to ask me, I would say that actually I think Mount Sinai is more likely to be here around in Saudi Arabia. But at the end of the day, it probably doesn't really matter. What really matters is what's the message that Exodus is trying to bring us. And it's this message of a people of freedom trying to get towards that promised land. Now, whether you go with the traditional route or the modern day route, both are in agreement of where Israel goes next from Mount Sinai. Whether they're starting here or whether they're starting there, they journey up to this place right here, which is known as Kadesh Barnea. So this land here, if you go to the next map, guys, you'll see it on there. Boom. There you go. This area here, uh, biblically, is known as Kadesh Barnea. Now, obviously, in modern days, uh, that has a bit of the modern-day Jordan, a bit of modern-day Israel. In those days, uh, the Promised Land was up here in this area. Uh, And so they camp here, and it's here where they famously send in the spies to go up to the Promised Land to spy what's up in the Promised Land and bring a report back down to them. Uh, That is something that we actually talked a lot with you guys about in 2021. If you've been a part of the Vine for a while, uh, we did a whole sermon series in 2021 called A Different Spirit, where we looked at this exact story of the 12 spies going to the promised land and then coming back with that report. So today, I'm not going to go into a huge amount of detail on that story. What I want to do is take you to what that story has implications for, for both Israel and for us To understand that story, to get an idea of what God does in the whole movement of the 12 spies to the promised land and returning back to Kadesh Barnea, 
I actually want to take you now to modern day Jordan, and I want to show you the geography of Kadesh Barnea, because when you actually see where Israel ended up being for 40 years, then you'll begin to understand what God needs to say to them and to us. Let's take a look at this. The laws of geometry teach us that the shortest distance between two points is actually a straight line. But as we've seen in the Exodus narrative, Israel's journey from their slavery in Egypt to their freedom in the Promised Land has been anything but. I mean, much like this canyon around me right now, it's been a journey of a lot of twists and turns where God has come and brought them on different routes and different pathways. And, you know, it's led them to kind of even wondering, are they going backwards more than they're actually gone forwards? But move forward, they must. At this point in the Exodus narrative, Israel has left Egypt and they're working their way up the stark but beautiful land of modern day Jordan, which is actually why I've come to Jordan today myself to visit one of the seven wonders of the world and perhaps the most amazing archeological site I have ever laid eyes on, the lost city of Petra. Known as the Rose City from the color of rocks from which it is carved, Petra was founded by the Nabataeans in the 4th century BC as a critical city strategically positioned on some of the most important trading routes at the time. By the time of Jesus in the 1st century, it had flourished to a thriving city of around about 20,000 people. Today, only a few of the original structures remain, but they stand testament to the wonder of both natural and human achievement, and they point towards the breathtaking beauty that can be found in this land. Of course, Petra as a city didn't even exist at the time that Israel moved through this land, but it's actually just up over the mountains here where Israel did make their passage. And just a short hike from here, I can actually take us to a place where we can see something that was very critical to the Exodus journey. So I've, I've come up here on this mountain, just up out of Petra, and it's pretty glary up here. But I've come here for a very particular purpose. The valley right here below me is known as Wadi Araba. In the Exodus story, it was called Kadesh Barnea. Now this was the place that Israel came and settled in as they sent the spies out to the Promised Land, which is about roughly about 100 miles northwest of here. You know, being up here today gives me a, a bit of a thrill because I can almost imagine the Israelites settled down there, hundreds of thousands of them. And, and their emotions would have been that, kind of that sense of exhaustion after that arduous journey that they've taken up from Egypt, but also a sense of excitement. You know, the, the promised land, that land flowing with milk and honey, it's just now almost within their reach. So the mountain that I was just standing at uh, near Petra is right there behind me. And I've just come down here now to the valley floor itself. And this really is incredibly hot, incredibly dry and arid. But, but standing here right now, I can see the mass expanse of land that Israel had as they encamped here. And I can understand why it was a great place to send out those spies to the promised land just north up here in this direction. 
Now, the narrative of the spies going into the promised land is found in Numbers chapters 13 and 14. We know the story well. Moses sends out the 12 spies to the land and the 12 spies come back with a report. And first of all, they say, hey, the land is exactly as God said. It's filled with all of his promises. It flows with milk and honey. Here is the fruit. They bring some of the fruit back to show Moses and the rest of Israel. But there's a second side of the report. They also say the land is filled with giants, with fortified cities, with massive armies. And because of that, they're filled with fear. Right at the start of Numbers 14, they cry out with this. They say, why have we come all this way to die right here in this desert? Surely it would have been better for us to have gone right back there to Egypt. And they actually say, we would rather have slavery in Egypt than come and die in this place, in this desert. They're so filled with fear that they no longer see with faith, but they see with sight. And that sight tells them to go backwards rather than forwards. So it would be right here, like literally in this place, that Israel would end up wandering for 40 years, one year for every day that the spies were in the promised land as judgment for their fear and their lack of faith and trust. You see, God wanted a whole generation of Israel to pass away before the new generation would freshly encounter God's promises. Much like Moses, as he stood before that burning bush, how he was commanded to remove his sandals so that nothing impure would touch the holiness of God's presence. So God now wants to remove a whole generation so that nothing unholy in his eyes would enter into his promises. And this begins to set up for us something that is super critical about the Exodus narrative. You see, our journey to freedom is a journey that God does in and through us. But it's not a journey where we're silent participants. We actually get to partner with Him in that journey. God looks at us and wants us to have faith and courage and hope in His promises. Sure, it's God that does the miracles. It's God that moves in power. But we are to trust and have faith in that work in our lives. I mean, this is something that Moses has faced throughout his journey. And it's a call that's going to come on Joshua as in 40 years, he's about to take Israel into the promised land. It's the call to be strong and courageous. And it's a call that God also places on you in your journey of deliverance with him. To be strong and courageous, not within yourself, with your own abilities and your strengths and the things that you think you do well, but actually to find that strength and courage in a God that fights battles for you, in a God who actually can do the miracles, who can move the mountains, who can remove the giants. And so right here in the desert of Kardesh Barnier, we learn something so significant for our Exodus journey that it's actually a place where we come to recognize that the strength isn't in us, it's always in God. And so can I encourage each one of us to lean into the reality that in our exodus, it's strength and courage that is the call upon us. In our exodus, it is strength and courage that is the call upon us. I can't think of any better phrase to begin to draw this series to a close around than that. 
because you see this journey over the last 25 weeks in the book of Exodus, it's not a journey just so that you can understand a little bit about that book and maybe see a little bit about what God did for a bunch of people many, many years ago. It's actually a story for you and a story about you. It's a story about your next steps and how you're now to live your life. And as we draw the series to a close, my heart for us as a community is that we would now begin to live the story of Exodus out in our daily lives, that strength and courage would be how we live our lives. It's interesting, as the spies went into the promised land, they come back with this report of giants and fortified city. They are the two ways that they sum up the challenges that are ahead of them in the promised land that God has for them. And you need to understand that there are challenges ahead for you for how God wants you to live your life as a Christian. Challenges ahead for how you're going to live with your family, how you're going to live with your career, how you're going to raise your children, how you're going to see your marriage flourish. Challenges are ahead of all of us. The issue is not whether there are challenges ahead. The issue is how are we going to respond to the giants and the fortified cities when they come? And I want to show you how Israel responds because there's something here that I think we need to grasp as we bring the series to a close this month. Let me read uh, Numbers 14, verses 1 to 4. That night, uh, all the people of the community, this is Israel, raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this desert. Why is the Lord bringing us to a land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and our children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it have been better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, may we choose a leader and go back to Egypt. I wonder if this reminds you of anything. This is exactly the same thing that Israel said when their backs were against the Red Sea and they saw the armies of Egypt charging after them and they turned to Moses and said, why have you led us here to die? We we would rather go back to Egypt than go forward here because we're trapped. We don't think there's any way to go. And now, so many years later, as God has done so much in them, they're still saying the same thing. Haven't you seen the giants? Haven't you seen the fortified cities? Don't you see all the obstacles that are ahead of us? It would have been better for us to remain in our slavery. At least we understood it. At least it was known to us. Yes, we were suffering, but it was a suffering we had become comfortable with. We're not comfortable with the uncertainty of a future. We'd rather take the comfort of slavery. It's amazing what fear does to us. Fear will always cause you to choose decisions designed for your comfort rather than decisions that are designed for your freedom. Oh, come on, church. Fear will always cause you to make decisions designed for your comfort, not necessarily decisions that are designed for your freedom. Israel would rather hold on to what was known and comfortable to them, even if that meant slavery, than move forward to what was unknown and uncomfortable for them, even though that was their freedom. And you have not been saved by Jesus for a safe, comfortable, easy life. If you carry the name of Christ with you, if you say you are a Christian, that means that you are the bravest, most boldest, most courageous person that there is. It means that God has saved you for a mission and a purpose. And that mission, the purpose is to reveal his heart of justice, his heart of love, his heart of grace in this world. And Paul, writing to the church to help them to soberly understand this call, would say to them, if anybody is in Christ Jesus, they will be persecuted. And he says it with a smile. He says, it's going to be hard. 
It's going to be tough. There's going to be giants and fortified cities. And the call is to be strong and courageous. Because if you're strong and courageous, you'll face the giants. You'll face the fortified cities. And we'll see this thing called my kingdom move forward. But if you're weak and if you hold off of those things, and if you would rather have comfort and safety, well, you can have comfort and safety without me, God says. But if you want me, then strap yourself in for adventure. Because what I need my church to be doing is to be my hands and feet in this world. It's going to take strength and courage for you to live as God has called you to live. And one of the things we have to ask ourselves is when we get too comfortable and too easy, we have to ask ourselves whether we are still living out of the missional purposes that God has for us or whether we've decided to stay in Kadesh Barnea rather than move forward to the promised land. It's interesting, in Kadesh Barnea, there were no giants or fortified cities. And you saw it in the film, there was nothing there. And when nothing's there, it's easy. It's dry, it's barren, it's hot, but at least there's no giants or fortified cities. The giants and fortified cities were in the place of God's promises, and that was where he needed his people to be. And it was going to take strength and courage for them to move forward in that way. And you need to understand that that's the life that God has called you to do. It will take strength and courage for you to fight for the gospel. It'll take strength and courage for you to fight for the gospel. You're going to have to fight against the giants of a mind and, and the fortified cities of a heart. If you want to stand for justice in this world, it's going to take you courage to fight against the giants that are found in corridors of power and the fortified cities that are found in systemic injustice and abuse. If you truly want to stand for the poor and the vulnerable and the marginalized in a community, it's going to take courage for you to stand against the giants that are found in our selfish decision-making and the fortified cities of our bank accounts and resources. See, to live the Christian life is the greatest adventure you'll ever live, but it is not for the weak-hearted. And when Christ invites us into this life, he invites us in with this challenge. Kadesh Barnea or the promised land? I don't know about you, but I know Kadesh Barnea really well. A number of years ago, I was working in investment banking, and I traveled quite a lot to our Tokyo office at the time, And on one of my trips up there, uh, I was having coffee with one of my colleagues in the department I was working in, and she was sharing with me about how she felt she was passed over for promotion because of her gender. And I was always having a coffee with her and listening to her share that because she was a woman, she felt like she didn't get the same promotional opportunities in the bank. She felt like there was a culture uh, that was patriarchal, a culture that was against the promotion of women. Um, I had a lot of sympathy for her. I, I actually felt her heart and I knew that probably what she was saying was true. And she was sharing this with me because I actually was really good friends with her boss, her direct boss. And she was hoping that I might be able to, over a beer or something, have a chat with her boss and and maybe help him to understand that this is how some of the women in her department or in his department were were acting. And and that perhaps there is a little bit of a culture that we have at the bank that needs to be addressed. And, And I realized in that moment that the courageous decision would have been to have that conversation with the boss. The courageous decision would have been to go and say, hey, I'm a man myself and I understand that there is this culture. I've benefited from that culture myself. I realize that I've probably been promoted when maybe some other women in my department should have been promoted. I realize that all the senior leadership in our firm are men and maybe that diversity is not right. I should have had the courage to sit down with him and and say that there are some people being overlooked simply because they are not the same gender as the ones that are in power. 
the weak response, though, the weak response was to listen to her and tell her that I cared for her and heard her and yet not had that conversation with the boss because I realized in having that conversation with the boss, my own career would be put in jeopardy. That, that maybe if I had that conversation, I wouldn't be able to be as promoted as I had been. That actually, as a man, I kind of enjoyed the reality of the culture that was in the firm. That I was the one who benefited from it, and I didn't want to put that at jeopardy. I'd like to stand before you and tell, tell you that I was courageous. <laughs> but I was weak. And I never had that conversation. And out of all the 10 years that I was in the business world, that's the one decision that I regret the most that I never stood up for the person that asked me to stand up for them in a culture that needed standing up against. And because of that, I carried some guilt and shame around with me for quite a while. And I experienced Kadesh Benir. I experienced what it was like to stay comfortable, but in a dryness of the soul. And I think I left my colleague in her Kadesh Benir as well where she had longed for something more in the company she was working for. And because I was not strong enough to stand up for her, she probably remained where she did for longer than she should have. I think we all know Kadesh Benir well in our lives. And the question I have to ask myself is, how do I do better? Or maybe the question we need to ask ourselves is, how do we do better? How do we live more Christ-like in our city? How do we have the strength and courage to have the conversations and stand up for the vulnerable and the marginalized more in our city? How do we find the courage to do the thing that so often we lack in ourselves? There are two spies, of course, in the story that have that courage in them. They're the ones that hold the different spirit. And I want you to see how they respond to the fear that is amongst their people. This is starting in verse 6 of Numbers 14. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we pass through is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not be afraid of the people of that land, because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. There's, there's something in Joshua and Caleb that enables them to stand against the majority opinion around them, against the culture of their day, if you will, and say, we're not going to remain in Kadesh Benir. That if we believe that God is with us, if we believe that he is for us, then we will go up and take this land because he's promised us this land. There's something in them that I know that so often is not in me. And I want you to see how Joshua and Caleb try to bring courage and strength to their people. The first thing they say is, if the Lord is pleased with us. I want you to think about this phrase, because I think this means so much to every single one of us here. If the Lord is pleased with us, which really what Joshua and Caleb are saying is, if we believe that God is for us, then we have nothing to fear. Like if we really believe that God stands with us, then we know that we can go to whatever obstacles, whatever giants and whatever fortified cities might be there. And it doesn't mean we're always going to be successful. It doesn't mean that everything we put our hands to is suddenly going to be amazing. But it does mean that we have one who has promised us something and one who's going to fight on our behalf. It means that we can find the strength and courage in us to face the giants and the fortified cities. To say that Kardesh Benia is not where we're going to live if the Lord is pleased with us. And here's the reality for all of us. 
We so often make weak and bad decisions in our lives because we ultimately think that God isn't pleased with us. See, when you think that God is not really that pleased with you, you're always going to choose self-preservation in your life. You're always going to choose a path that takes you towards comfort and security rather than the future that God has for you. And we think so often that God is not pleased with us because of our sin. Some of us in this room, you know you're in a season where you're struggling with some sin. And and you're not proud of what it is that you're doing and you're struggling to get free from it. And because of that, your perception is you think that God is not pleased with you. How could God be happy with you, with the life that you're leading? And because you're leading that life, you think God has given up on you. You think he's distant from you. You think he's angry at you. And all of that causes you to make more and more weak decisions towards the sin rather than the freedom. And what we have to understand is in the Old Testament, when they said, if the Lord is pleased with us, they're trying to work out whether God is actually pleased with them or not. But we're not people of the Old Testament. We're people of the New Testament. We're we're people of Jesus. We're we're people of the ones who live now under a new covenant. We're people who now live under one who has stood in the gap and taken all of our sin and brokenness on his shoulders. In the Old Testament, they were going, is God going to really be pleased with us? And we've got to uphold all this law to make sure we get God on our side. In the New Testament, we live now in a time where we know that Christ is for us. We know that he stood in the gap and paid the price for our sins, so we have this freedom. Our question shouldn't be, is God pleased with us? Our question should be, because God has chosen to be pleased with us, how can I now make decisions in my life that honor the pleasure of Christ in me? Let me put it this way. It's actually not about whether God is pleased with you or not. So actually about whether he's pleased with Christ. And he is pleased with Christ. And because he's pleased with Jesus, he is pleased with you. Because even in your sin, he still went to the cross for you. Even in the ongoing sin that you struggle with, he has not removed his love from you. Even in the challenges that we have, his grace is still present with us. Make no mistake, God hates sin. And that sin is judged by God. So we don't have the excuse because of Jesus to go on sinning and not care. We have the call under Christ to continue to submit our brokenness to him, ask for his forgiveness, and walk in the power of that forgiveness. But our reality is we have strength and courage in us because we should never guess whether God is pleased with us or not. He is pleased with me because of the blood of Jesus. He is pleased with me because I've been made a child, an heir of his. He is my high priest who stands in the gap and speaks before the Father and says, this one, Andrew, is not perfect, but see him through the blood of Jesus. And when you see him through the blood of Jesus, he's forgiven, he's saved, he is filled, and he is released. Where does my strength and courage come? Does it come because I think I'm good? No. Does it come because even in my brokenness, he reigns? Yes. If you truly believe that God is pleased with you, you will face giants and fortified cities. Are you with me, church? But there's another bit here. There's another bit that's even more important. It's a bit that Caleb and Joshua speak to that I think the church 
is uniquely gifted for more than any other institution in the world. And to help you to understand this process that Joshua and Caleb speak to in this passage, I, I want to actually take you back to Egypt, to Cairo, actually, for, for the very final time uh, in this whole series. And I want to take you to a place where people make paper. I know. Stay with me for a second. The greatest way that you're going to find strength and courage doesn't just come from your relationship with God and the fact that he's pleased with you despite the realities of your brokenness and sin. The place where you'll find your greatest strength and courage will come when you understand how paper was originally made. And so when I went to Egypt, I got taught how to make original paper, and I want to show you that experience. Let's have a look at this. We're here today at the Golden Eagle, a papyrus shop right in the heart of Cairo, and I'm here with Asma, and today she's going to be teaching me how to actually make papyrus paper, which is something that's been done for thousands of years. I'm so grateful to be here. Thanks for hosting us. Hello, my name is Asma, and I'm going to explain to you everything about this plant and how the ancient Egyptian people made the first paper out of this plant. This is the papyrus plant. It's an aquatic and a tropical plant because it needs a lot of water and high temperature to grow. That's why it grows beside to the banks of the Nile River. Right. And it's also a holy plant for the ancient Egyptian for two reasons. Okay. The first reason, the flower looks like the sun rays, which is a symbol of Amun-Ra, the god of sun for the ancient Egyptian. Mm -hmm. The second reason, the stem has a triangle shape, yeah, that looks like a pyramid. Yeah, which is simple <laughs> of eternity. That's great. So make a paper like this one. We cut the stem according to the side that we want. Now I'm going to remove the, the green cover. The green cover nowadays is useless, but in ancient time, they used this part to make hats, mats, wood baskets, wood sandals, even the small boots. I would probably chop my finger off if I tried to do that. You're, you're very skilled at that. We use this part to make the paper, but this part is very weak and so easily broken. Right. It's like sugar cane, but we don't need it. Right. Okay, now I'm gonna use the hammer, removing all the water out, like that. Okay, I'm gonna try. Yeah. It flattens very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And here, do you see the water? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And after that, we use the ruler pen. Okay. To make it flexible, do like you do pizza. It's like bread or pizza, right? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And this is just to get the water out and to yeah. make it as dry as possible? Flexibly. Flexible, right. Okay, it's not. Okay. <laughs> okay. Now there's no water inside it. It's more flexible and strong than before. I feel. Oh, yeah. And it's sticky, right? It's sticky, yeah, it's kind of like sticky. Now, after that, we soak it into the water to reduce the amount of the sugar. Six days to get this paper. After that, between two sheets of carpet. Right. I'm going to take the slices and put them in one vertical and horizontal line. Would you do that? Sure. So put this vertical. Yeah. Okay. And one in horizontal. And you put like one on top of it like that. Yeah. So it's kind of like a crisscross pattern. Yeah. Okay. After finishing all the paper, we cover it like this one and put it under the press machine. Okay, so cover it and then put and it under here. And put it under the press machine for another six days. Six days? Yeah. Oh my goodness. Okay. Can I just put this in now? How tight? Really yeah, tight? Yeah, yeah. But in ancient time, they didn't have that machine, so they used, what did they use, guess what? Uh, maybe stones? Yes, heavy okay. stones. OK. 
Okay. Uh -huh. Okay, we have here six days in the fresh water and six days under the press machine. After 12 days, we will have the first paper in the history. Okay. Ah. The papyrus paper. Wow. It's a strong and flexible. So when it's just like one strand on its own, it's actually like really weak. But when you kind of create them and pack them all together and press them and dry them out, it actually becomes really strong. Yes, this yeah. is because the amount of the sugar inside it. Right, so the more the sugar there is, yeah. the more you cross it around and press it together, yes. Yes. the stronger it'll and be. And wait until it dry and we can use it uh, easily. And can you tear it? If yeah. I do that, I can cut it into slices. We will see the vertical and horizontal lines, right? Mm -hmm. And I can put a little water here to fix it again. And one day under the press machine. You can fix it again? Yeah. One day under the press machine and we can use it again. So go back. Okay, okay. I just need to get my head around that one. Okay, <laughs> so you can tear it up yeah. and kind of screw up the paper. Yeah. But as long as you water. put the individual crisscrossing again, yeah. putting them all back together again, pressing it again, it'll yeah. be strong again. Yes. That is super paper. Yeah, <laughs> super paper. <laughs> it is super paper, that's amazing. Hey, well, thanks so much. I mean, I think that's helped us to really understand how something that on the surface appears very weak, just a little plant like that, actually through that process becomes so strong as it works together with that, yeah. with the crisscrossing and the sugar. Um, that's been amazing. Thank you so much for taking no time worries. to show us this. It's, it's been incredible. Oh, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. <laughs> Asma is the fastest speaking Egyptian I have ever met in my life. <laughs> I had no idea what she said the whole time. <laughs> I hope she's not watching. Bless you, Asma. Um, let me show you what Caleb and Joshua say here and link this to what you've just seen. Verse nine, only do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people of the land because he will swallow them up. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. I love what he says here. He says, the Lord is with us. First of all, he says, the Lord is with us. That's a good thing because if it's just us, it's bad. The Lord is with us. But then he says, the Lord is with us. He doesn't say, the Lord is with Moses. He doesn't say the Lord is with the good people. He doesn't say the Lord is with just those who come to church every Sunday. He said the Lord is with us. He's with all of us in all of our brokenness and all of our weakness and all of our strength and our giftings and all of our bad mistakes. He's with all of that. And because he is interwoven with us, we now are strengthened in him. And, and I love this picture of the papyrus paper. Uh, this is a piece that they gave us from the shop. I don't know if you can see this in the light at all. Maybe if I turn to the side, you might be able to see the crisscross pattern. Can you see that in there? Yeah, the crisscross pattern in there. That's a beautiful picture of what church is all about. Because on your own, you are pretty weak and vulnerable. But when we come together in the body of Christ and we realize that on our own, we may not be able to make all the decisions that would bring glory to Jesus, but when we work together, when we realize that we are crossed in our lives and in our destinies together, when we realize that we need the water added to us like that paper needed, the Holy Spirit given to a bunch of believers, 
When we realize that at times God presses us, brings us into persecution, brings us into hard times to press us together and to bond our unity even more together as we face the challenges in life. As we realize that, we realize we become as a community both strong like this and incredibly flexible so that we can do the things that Christ has called us to do in the world. You want to know where your strength and courage comes? It comes, yes, from a God who is pleased with us and knowing that he's pleased with us, but it also comes in knowing that we have one another. It's, it comes knowing that, that we're not saved for an individual relationship with God and to be on our own in the world. We're saved so that we could be together as the body of Christ, the body of Christ. For the Lord is with us in all of our brokenness. He is with us in all of our strength. He is with us. In all of our frailty, He is with us. In all of the things that we're anointed to do by His Spirit, He is with us in all of it. And as we commit to one another, we grow and strengthen, not just ourselves, but us as a community. I love it when she took the knife and she went and cut the piece of paper and started to pull the strands out. And if we're honest with ourselves as the body of Christ, as the church, there have been many times in church history over the last 2,000 years where it feels like a knife has been brought to the church and been torn apart. I would say even during our protest time here in Hong Kong, the church was torn apart at times. During COVID even, and your perspectives on that issue and whether you should get the vaccine or not and all of that had the challenge of tearing apart the unity of the church. But I love the fact that with papyrus paper, even if it's been torn apart a little bit, it just needs to get crisscrossed a bit. You need to add a little bit more water to it. You need to press down a little bit. And hey, presto, it's back together again. And isn't it great that no matter how battered the church gets, as the Holy Spirit falls upon us and brings us together again, we are reunited in that one prayer that Jesus has, my prayer for them, Lord, is that they would be united as one like you and I are united as one. Your strength and courage comes, yes, from how God is pleased with you, but it also comes from the person sitting next to you, from what it is to be called to be community. And if you came in today feeling isolated and alone, you're a part of the body of Christ here at the Vine. And that should mean something. It should mean something to us and it should mean something to you. And when we share our stories and our vulnerabilities, when we ask for prayer and we recognize our weaknesses, when we know what the giants and the fortified cities are in our lives and we ask each other to come together, we as a church move from Kadesh Barnea to the promised land that God has for it. Whatever that might mean for the church of Jesus Christ here in Hong Kong. You are not alone. And you have been saved for the most courageous life you have not been saved for comfortable, easy decisions. You've been saved for justice and goodness and love and mercy and grace. And those things will require a strength of courage in you to walk forward. Find that strength in a God who is pleased with you, no matter what it might be that's going on in your life. And find that strength in the community of the brothers and sisters around you, who even in their weaknesses has broken jars of clay, enable the gospel to still continue to be seen. That's is how the Exodus story draws to its end. And that should inspire us and fill us with great hope. Amen? Can I pray for us? Let's pray. Father, we are so incredibly grateful that you have called us to be strong and courageous in our lives. And Father, like I shared today, we know Kardesh Benia well. 
We know what it is to make decisions that keep us in the dry and weary place, the isolated place that we've become comfortable with. It takes courage to face the giants and the fortified cities, to live a life that you truly called us to live. And Father, as we see in the papyrus paper, you have brought us together not to live that life alone. And Lord, we're thankful for our brothers and sisters in this room, the people around us. We are your children. And Father, I wanna pray that you would draw us together in a deeper way as we draw our series to a close in the next week. That Father, you would continue to fill us with your spirit, the water that binds us together. That we would recognize that in those moments where we are pressed, we are not crushed. That actually the pressing draws us into a deeper place of unity than ever before. Father, I wanna pray that our strength and courage is found in you and is found in our fellowship together. I wanna encourage you in response today to, to invite some prayer for you. Uh, perhaps there are some things that are going on for you where you would just love and value someone to pray for you. And so we're gonna take some time as the worship team just uh, play gently in the background. I'm gonna invite you into a space to just pray for one another. Uh, maybe you came in here with uh, some people, some friends, some family. I wanna encourage you to take some time just to maybe share some of the giants or the fortified cities that are in front of you in this moment. And just invite the person next to you to pray for you. If you came here on your own, this is a great way. I know it's a little bit uncomfortable, but you are a part of the body of Christ. And so you can reach out to the person sitting next to you, introduce yourself and say, hey, I'd love some prayer for this. There's this going on in my life. I, I can't do this alone. I would love someone to just encourage me and support me today. Um, so I wanna invite you to do that. Uh, that means you need to open your eyes. It means that you need to look at the person next to you and smile at them and say, hi, nice to meet you. Um, I would like some prayer today. Could you pray for this for me? And then they're gonna pray for you uh, and then you can pray for them. And then in a moment, we'll be closing our service uh, together. So let's spend some time in prayer together.